Hi everyone, my name is Christian Rallone. I'm the co-president of Wharton FinTech and today's host. Today's guest is Rex Salisbury. Rex is the founder of FinTech Devs and PMs Meetup in San Francisco. Rex organizes monthly company visits and panels showcasing many of SF's most exciting FinTech firms. Past firms that Rex has showcased include A16Z, Affirm, Branch, Earnin, Plaid, SoFi, Wealthfront, and many others. Rex, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, good to be here. So tell us a little bit more about yourself. How did you get interested in FinTech? Yeah, so I, uh, like, I don't know, a decent number of people in fintech started off doing uh, something else. So I started off doing investment banking with Merrill Lynch, uh, specifically real estate syndications. And while I was working in the world of investment banking, uh, I was kind of looking over into the world of innovation and finance and seeing that there was a lot more interesting work being done uh, in the Bay Area than there was on the East Coast. So uh, one of the problems with investment banking is there you're basically sitting next to large piles of money and then extracting small fees from uh, those piles as they exchange hands. And what that means is uh, there's a lot of inefficiency in the process, but at the end of the day, your fees are often small enough and the nature and the competitive forces in the industry are such that there's very little incentive for any of the players to radically change uh, how they conduct business because the friction of the business and the inefficiency of it is often how the various different parties get paid. So for instance, I close, you know, a really large deal and it would take 40 bankers and you say, well, why does it take 40 bankers? Why can't this be done with one? And the answer is, well, it turns out 40 people really like getting paid to like participate in these things. So that's how I kind of got started and got really excited about seeing new business models where it actually made sense to innovate and to tackle real problems in finance. Uh, and when I was looking at that, a lot of those companies were kind of taking place out in the Bay Area uh, and doing things more consumer oriented, uh, so that's kind of my story of, of how I got started. Um, and then to, to actually make the transition, what I ended up doing was just moving out to the Bay Area and having a ton of conversations with different folks. Uh, and that's one of the great things about the Bay Area is there's so many people here who are working on you know new things. Uh, and it's very much a community that pays it forward. It's very easy to go out and to just have lots of conversations and figure things out. So I, I got some opportunities to work for fintech companies in a business capacity, uh, and then realized as part of those conversations that I've been had for, having for a couple of months that I was really much more interested in the product and engineering side of things. So I had been uh, teaching myself to code for a while and decided to make the jump fully over to working as in kind of a hybrid software engineering and product role. So I, uh, my first real fintech role was automating mortgages at Syndio. Uh, and then from there moved on to automating background checks at, at Checker. And for someone who's looking to transition from more of a business to a product and engineering role, what sort of resources would you recommend in terms of learning appropriate coding languages or other resources that you found most helpful? Yeah, so I have this conversation with a lot of people, um, <clears throat> and I think there, there are a couple different ways of going about it. If you want to go the purely technical route, the most important thing first is just to validate your interest in the material. And the great news is there's so much in the way of free resources online that you can simply go online, do some work, try to build something. And that's something I would say, don't just take classes, try to actually build something uh, because that helps get some kind of intrinsic motivation going and get a sense of what it feels like when you're creating something as opposed to just uh, consuming course content. And then if you do find that interest is real, I highly recommend immersive learning in the form of some kind of coding bootcamp if you want to make the jump to software engineering. Not everyone should become a software engineer, so you need to kind of validate that for yourself. Uh, but if you are interested in doing that way, it's an amazing way to get a sense of what technology really looks like. Uh, 
as someone who, who helps create it. Uh, and then software engineering opens up a tremendous amount of opportunities in terms of ability to transition to other roles within fintech companies or to go a lot deeper uh, in the software world because there, there's a lot of specialization that can be had and constantly updates in the tooling. So if it's something you're considering, uh, I would say check out the free stuff and then think about taking the plunge. Uh, no one, I know a lot of people have gone from non-technical roles to technical ones and very few individuals, were, I would say no one I know actually regrets it. So if you're thinking about it, you probably should do it uh, and just get started. And you went from uh, investment banking to a, a real estate fintech startup. What attracted you to, to the industry? What kept your, uh, your interest within fintech? Yeah, so I, I was doing some work in uh, traditional finance around uh, real estate. So I'd spent a lot of time uh, just thinking about the space. Uh, I'd put up a small portfolio of investment properties, been through the mortgage process a couple of times. Uh, and the mortgage process is just a terrible process. Uh, for anyone who's been through it, they know it. For people who haven't been through it, you probably have been told it's terrible. But I guarantee you, when you actually go through the process, you're like, oh my gosh, I did not even realize how bad it was. So one story I have for there, there is uh, one of the first uh, homes that I closed on. I actually had my attorney uh, complete the closing and complete the docs uh, as my power of attorney. When I got back my official loan documentation, instead of having my name on them, it had the name as power of attorney. So like. One of just the very basic things that you should do is make sure that your documentation is correct when finalizing a mortgage. And sometimes banks, after putting you through the ringer, after taking 30 days to close a loan, they can't even like get the, the loan right. So knowing that, knowing that it's a huge market um, with a lot of consumer frustration, it seems like a really exciting place to go. Uh, in hindsight, it looks like a lot of the companies who took kind of a full stack mortgage approach, it was just a little bit too early, the financial primitives required to automate the process uh, and therefore kind of create a better consumer experience. That honestly, they're, st they're still being built today and three years ago they certainly uh, did not exist. So I'm still very excited about the mortgage space. Uh, and for those of you who don't know, Syndio uh, has shut down as of about, uh, I guess it was about a year and a half ago now, uh, as, as have some other uh, mortgage companies that got started. But I'm still very excited about that space and look forward to a lot of the other developments going on there. The, the software as a service plays uh, in mortgage have done a little bit better. Blend, for example, is, is doing great. There's a, there's a lot of paperwork, uh, but real estate is very much about the real world. You have assets that sit, you know, <clears throat> that are recorded deeds at courthouses. And if you want to facilitate the closing and have like a full electronic process, you also have to figure out ways of transferring title in more effective ways. Title insurance is an industry that has super high profit margins, only a few players. There's some fintech companies who are working on that. And that like, and there's just so many other pieces that are, that are part and parcel to understanding real estate and real estate fintech that just need a lot of work. Um, but it's, it's an exciting area. Um, certainly for companies. So you also founded the uh, FinTech Devs and PMs meetup here in, in the Bay Area. What motivated you to, to start this community? Yeah, so I think one of the things that I'm most excited about in FinTech uh, are the, the people who are getting involved in FinTech. So specifically with this community, I just fell into it. I was helping a friend run a meetup for a while. Um, they got busy with another job, and so I ended up uh, just starting my own. Uh, as someone who's really excited to talk about things going on in fintech, this was an opportunity just to get together with people that I really enjoyed spending time with and to uh, convene them to uh, share ideas. 
So <clears throat> our community is now about 2,000 different folks. The archetype of a member is someone working in product at a fintech company. So these are the people who are kind of on the ground every day thinking about uh, what can be built uh, and how to do that and how to kind of bring about change by creating something that, that wasn't there before. So it's a really exciting group of people uh, to get together and we tend to have really great presenters and the presenters themselves are most often people working in product at fintech companies and they'll talk about uh, one of the most interesting things they've built in the last you know six to 12 months. And what have you been some of your biggest takeaways from creating this community? Uh, first of all, it's just the, the depth of uh, interest in the space in the Bay Area. There are just so many people who are interested in fintech. Uh, and that's great because it makes for a much uh, more engaged community and it means you can bring in all sorts of different perspectives. I think the thing that I'm most excited about uh, and find most interesting is to see how uh, the community has matured, but also uh, the approaches taken by fintech companies. If you think about fintech, it didn't really exist until after the Great Recession. And then there's just a kind of a few of the now marquee companies that uh, got started, Lending Club being one of the earliest. Now that it's 2018, FinTech's been going on for a long time, and if you just look at the headcount in the space, it's gone from very few to quite, quite a number, and a lot of those individuals represent members of our community. And it used to be in finance that the first-class citizens were just financiers. They were the bankers. Uh, technology people did not have a seat at the table. And if they did, they were not certainly uh, equals. And that's really changed because uh, at these fintech companies, technologists are first-class citizens. And what that means is you now have all these fintech companies where people are thinking about finance from software terms. And that's something that's never been done before. And going back to the Great Recession, there are very few people who are thinking about how do we take apart financial services and rebuild it through software. And today, you know, there are many thousands of them just in the Bay Area alone, and that number is growing every day, and people are going on from those original firms to think about new problems uh, that they may not ever have thought of when they were just working uh, as technologists. So having, having all of this uh, technical talent uh, is just one of the many things that makes the Bay Area great, as well as uh, access to capital. And I think marrying that technical talent with uh, expertise about the financial system is, is one of the most exciting trends going on right now. And as you mentioned, you have a hybrid background with both uh, you know, having worked in investment banking as well as uh, having studied uh, computer science or programming yeah. in your spare time. How does that hybrid background inform your view of, of the fintech industry? I. It helps me think a lot about things from a little bit of a different perspective than other folks. Uh, I like to, I'm also kind of an econ nerd and like thinking about financial regulation in the broader picture. But I think there are a lot of people who have hybrid backgrounds in the industry and that's really exciting. I'm also really excited to see uh, different perspectives being brought into the Bay Area. One thing that's happened uh, with fintech companies now is there seems to be a lot more exchange between the Bay Area and Washington in terms of bringing in people who have real regulatory expertise. You can look at the uh, the chief legal counsel for my company, Cindio. Uh, Joby was ex-CFPB. Uh, at our last event, our summit, we had Gary Reeder, who's the chief of staff and now runs the Fin Lab uh, for CFSI, CFSI. Uh, which incubates a ton of uh, very successful fintech companies. Uh, at our own, at Checker, uh, 
where I am presently, we have some folks around the CFPB. So I think if you go back a few years, you wouldn't have seen nearly as much exchange of talent between the Bay Area and San Francisco. Uh, and now you see a lot more of that. So that's, that's talking about just another perspective that's being brought in uh, along with the technologists and other folks who have been here for a long time. What do you think some of the biggest regulatory changes on the fintech industry are going to be over the next few years? Uh, I don't know. I, I, one, one thing that will be interesting, uh, there's a little bit of a rolling back going on with the change in the, uh, the White House. So it's hard to know exactly what the regulatory changes will be. Uh, I do think regardless of what those changes are, uh, fintech companies are being a lot more proactive in going out and speaking to regulators and trying to say, hey, here's what we're doing, here's why we're doing it, let us know what your thoughts are. It, a lot of other technology companies, you don't have to do that. You don't have to go out and kind of meet with the regulators and educate the regulators and have exchange as to what you're building. And in fintech, that's very important uh, for certain kinds of efforts to make sure that Maybe not from day one, but certainly when you get to any kind of scale to have open dialogue with folks. And you can look like one of our events coming up, we have a product summit in May, and we have the CEO of Scratch speaking, uh, and his name's Sammy, and he was, he's also on, I think, the advisory board of the CFPB. So that's another example of, you know, even if you don't know where regulation is going, you at least know who the people are, the right uh, relationships to approach, and the way to think about um, communicating the kinds of things you want to work on to the, to the right people. So we discussed uh, real estate already. What other industries within fintech do you find most exciting? Uh, real estate is definitely one of the industries I'm very excited about. Uh, I'm also really passionate about the investment advisory space and robos. Uh, I don't know if, uh, and then there are other things that are happening around insurance, et cetera. I think what excites me more is not necessarily specific industries. Uh, it's this kind of whole second wave of fintech entrepreneurs who, like I've talked about, have now spent you know three or four years at uh, a Credit Karma or at a Stripe or um, you know at a Checker, or a Cindio, a Blend, a Roostify, and are using that experience to inform some kind of new business that they want to start. So a lot of the early stage companies that we have present uh, at our monthly meetups. They are alumni of some of the most successful uh, existing fintech companies. And so I'm excited just to watch them and see, see where they're going. Uh, this isn't really a, a fintech industry, but it, it's talking about the players who are building the products for fintech companies themselves. So the first kind of fintech uh, platforms are the, the Yodlies, the Plaids, and the Quobos of the world. And I'm very excited to see other companies that start thinking about rebuilding uh, kind of starting to create whatever the equivalent of AWS for the fintech world is. So I think Plaid, Quobo, and Yodley all have uh, a big part of that. Um, and then to talk about Scratch again, Scratch is building out a platform to be loan servicing as a service. So if you don't want to manage your own uh, ledger and loan servicing, you can potentially turn to someone like Scratch for that kind of service. So the bigger companies like Affirm have built out their own, but the next generation of fintech companies might not have to tackle some of the thorny problems that come with doing that and instead focus on what really makes them unique. And if you, just like AWS, when you make all these little constituent parts a little bit easier, it allows you to build uh, your own service at a higher level of abstraction and to tackle whatever your own unique problem is. Um, 
So that's a really exciting development for me to see is that if you take care of some kind of the back end services and ease that, you're going to see a lot of spawning of new ideas and new ways of approaching problems. Yeah, one person I can think of in terms of the uh, your second wave of fintech thesis would be Max Levchin. You know, having started, been part of the original PayPal yeah. mafia, and then goes on to found another you know unicorn within the the fintech space, a firm. Yeah, totally. And I think I think the PayPal mafia is a great story, right? Like everyone, most people know like the PayPal mafia is a thing, and uh, PayPal is now at I think, and this is just comes off of LinkedIn, at about twenty three thousand employees. Um, you can go through the list of companies that the PayPal Mafia have gone on to create, and they're across all sorts of different industries. Uh, some of the largest fintech companies are right now only at you know like seventeen hundred, two thousand employees, but there are going to be a whole other set of you know credit karma mafias, lending club mafias, SoFi mafias that go out and address other problems. And I'm excited to see who those people are and what what kinds of problems they they decide to tackle. For sure. Uh, and what do you think are the biggest uh, impacts on consumers? Uh, so when you're thinking about, I, I don't know, you know, uh, what exactly the reorientation of the fintech landscape will be, what the, the biggest and best companies exactly what they look like, but one of the trends that I'm most excited about and I see a lot of companies doing interesting work on is automation. And at the end of the day, uh, I, I'm a big believer that automation is one of the ways that uh, fintechs can win against incumbents. So Frank Rodman, who's a founding partner at QED Investors, which is a fintech-specific fund based out of, I believe it is, Charlottesville, uh, he had a really nice post a while back that was talking about the Copernican revolution in banking, and he was saying, uh, if your business, de- uh, <clears throat> let's, let's say that differently, uh, consumers eventually will have perfect information. So if if with perfect information, consumers won't use your product, at some point in time, you're not going to have any more customers. And I would add on to that, that I don't think perfect information is enough. I think you also need zero friction. Because there's a lot of behaviors that just I take at a personal level that I know are not ideal behaviors, but there's enough friction inherent in the fintech or in the finance ecosystem that I don't do I don't change things. For example, like let's say you have uh, a banking account that earns like 0.0% uh, interest. Well, that's like that's true of almost all savings accounts, but it's so so much friction involved in moving it that you don't actually take that that action. So when you start actually building tools to automate things and move things around, I think it creates the ability to unlock value and allow consumers to act on the greater access to information they have. I think that also means that you can create whole new business models about how you do things. So just a few uh, toy examples. If you know Trim, Trim uh, is a personal financial manager. Uh, They do a bunch of things, help analyze your spending patterns, et cetera, but they also have a bot that will negotiate down your Comcast bill. So I know that when Comcast has an outage or raises my rates, I can probably go in and I can probably get them to give back some money to me. But I also know that's going to take me a few hours and it's going to be a total pain. Trim just does that through uh, a bot that they have. And then what they do is they, uh, if they save you $20, they take 25% of that for themselves and they take 15 uh, and you get the, the remaining amount, which that idea there is now it's like automation is allowing you to build a business based around the value you deliver and not necessarily about trying to extract value 
from your consumers. So if you think about a bank, a bank makes money maybe sometimes by doing uh, overdraft fees, and that puts you directly at odds at your, with your consumer. If you're predicated on automating uh, certain things for your customer, and in automating them, you kind of take a, a component of what you help them save, that's like a much better alignment of interests, and then also a much more exciting business, I think, to work for. It's one where you're like, hey, I'm firmly on the consumer side of things. How do I make their life easier? Um, Tally is one company that's presented at uh, our events in the past. They're uh, framed themselves as the world's first automated debt manager, and the idea is that they uh, take, you can connect all your credit cards, and they basically take over it from there. So the idea is you don't have to become smarter or know how to deal with your credit cards any better. You can rely on Tally to intelligently understand which cards have the highest rates, when all your payments are due, and then if you're about to miss something, they'll even like extend your line of credit. So they're very much also uh, in the line of thought that in order to help consumers win in the future, you have to really double down on automation. And I think that's a really exciting narrative. So when I think about this kind of uh, second wave of fintech entrepreneurs, uh, one thing I'm very excited to go and see them tackle uh, is First of all, more platform plays like we talked about. How do you actually build the AWS of fintech? And then also, how do you really automate things so you can drive real value for real people and create a whole new kind of business model as you do it? Going forward, if we assume that this new paradigm shift towards perfect information and lower barriers to switching goes forward, what do you think the trend would be in fintech? We've seen, to some degree some initially the unbundling of financial services now we're seeing a rebundling do you think rebundling would continue or do you believe that fintech firms would continue to specialize yeah i think there when i think about and so this is yeah unbundling and rebundling is definitely a thing and how that happens uh i wish i knew exactly what the uh, end story looks like i i like thinking about uh and this is probably talking more for consumer-oriented uh, fintech companies. I, I'm interested in companies that have a really compelling hook uh, to kind of get an initial engagement with users, and then they can turn that hook over and hook over time into a much more fully considered suite of features. So if you think about someone like. Um, Trim, maybe their hook is like, oh, we'll negotiate down your Comcast bill. And then over time, they can say, oh, well, we'll negotiate down this. They actually just uh, announced, uh, I think it's a subscription-based model where they uh, give you advice on how to handle your debts and then also have some tools to take care of that for you. So like the hook is maybe like show up, we'll, we'll save you like $15 in less than 15 minutes. And then the next suite of services, oh, here we're going to help you automate your debts. Here we're going to help you automate your other things. Tally has a really great hook, which is like, we're going to take care of all of your credit card payments for you. Oh, by the way, now that you're here, maybe we'll start helping you figure out how to save. Maybe we'll help you start figuring out how to invest. So there's some interesting um, potentials to layer on different services on top of that. If you look at uh, the robo-advisory world, Layering on, uh, you know, one thing that like Wealthfront has done, for example, is layered on a lot of financial advice on top of their existing investment platform. Uh, They just made Path, which is their name for their uh, financial advisory software, free to everyone. And that's a great way to get people, you know, engaged with your platform is to say, like, come here for the advice and then stay for access to fully automated investment management. 
that isn't just like you know pixels on a screen, but we're actually uh, driving real value by doing things like tax, tax loss harvesting, automated rebalancing, uh, and adjusting your your plan over time to meet meet your needs as we see your needs changing based on the data that that comes in. How do you assess whether you mentioned creating the AWS of, of financial services. How do you assess whether this new platform, as an investor, for example, is viable? For example, we've seen Robinhood and Wealthfront both uh, create their own clearing services, and I know you, you've spoken about that in the past. Yeah, so there, uh, So one thing that will be different about the AWS and FinTech, of course, is that there probably is no Amazon. I don't know, maybe, maybe there is, and we don't know who it is yet, but there probably is no Amazon that builds all of these uh, core services from scratch. So it'll probably be a lot of different companies building different aspects of the kind of platform-oriented services. Uh, <clears throat> it's an interesting, I'm, I'm trying to think about different examples of uh, what's been done. So right now, account aggregation um, uh, and Verification has kind of been taken care of by, as we've mentioned before, uh, Plaid, Quovo, and Yodley. Uh, I think the next generation of services, I, I guess what I would probably start with, I, I have this frame, which is I think that uh, change in finance will start in sectors with the low value and the uh, high volume and kind of move up the chain from there. So if you look at that from the lending perspective. It started out with consumer unsecured notes in the form of lending club. It moved up the chain into um, student mortgages were probably the next uh, asset class that was successful from a debt perspective uh, with SoFi. Then we tried to go to mortgages. Uh, a lot of companies tried to do that. I don't know, maybe someone's kind of figured it out, but I think the jury is still out even for the companies that are still around. So when I think about the platforms that are going to be successful, you can't build a platform for fintech companies that don't exist yet, right? So trying to build a platform uh, for mortgage companies, uh, it's probably a little bit hard to actually, right now uh, in the mortgage industry, basically everyone uses Encompass and they're the big bank. So building mortgage origination software uh, is very different from building kind of the financial primitives, I think, that are necessary to help automate uh, the mortgage origination process. What I think we need for that is basically someone rebuilding uh, Ellie Mae's Encompass, which is uh, the loan origination system used by the vast majority of the industry, and doing that in like a totally digital native way that, you know, APIs are our first level citizens that allow you to integrate your own kind of front end into the, the highly regulated complex back end. Uh, so if we were to kind of rewind low value, high volume, I think that one of the areas is definitely around loan servicing for the lower value uh, kind of lending. Uh, so that would be things that are a little bit more analogous to lending clubs uh, products, which are consumer unsecured credit. So I'd probably look for things and that area first. And to talk about Scratch again, that's what Scratch is doing. They're, they're doing a loan servicing platform. Uh, and I believe they're starting with consumer unsecured credit and then with student loans, um, maybe in the future moving on to, to other products and services as well. So that's a, a long roundabout answer of just saying loan servicing for the low value, high volume <laughs> uh, parts of the industry that have kind of already seen a lot of change. Got it. And outside of Financial technology specifically, I know you think a lot about you know financial services and the direction financial services are going over the next uh, you know few years. What's your what's your view on on financial services in general? Uh, one thing I'm really excited 
people are interested about too is um, what better financial regulation looks like for the banking sector. Uh, so this is maybe a little bit orthogonal, orthogonal to the conversation, but I think one of the most exciting bits of news in financial services was a company started by the former uh, chair of research at the New York Fed called the Narrow Bank. And they uh, got licensed and chartered as a bank uh, and their whole goal is simply to allow institutions to deposit large amounts of money with them, and they will pass that money on directly through to the Fed and just collect uh, a small fee as part of that. Right now, banks basically have uh, a monopoly on the right to issue FDIC-insured deposit accounts. Uh, and so in some ways, banks are this group that has been given a monopoly by the federal government to issue a very particular kind of uh, service and in doing so uh, tend not to offer the best uh, things on top of it. So I'm excited about thinking about some of the things that can uh, lead to uh, regulatory change that maybe challenge some of the things that only banks can do today, but only in ways that are kind of safe for the, the financial uh, ecosystem. And one thing that's interesting about something like the Narrow Bank is it it's a very safe uh, change, and that's not a regulatory thing. It's just kind of a little bit of business model innovation uh, uh, because someone who put, passes banks directly through uh, to the Fed or uh, deposits directly through the Fed, you aren't actually then lending out 90% of it to very risky businesses and then at risk of uh, becoming insolvent because it's basically all just parked parked in one of the safest places it could possibly be. So, so that's something I'm kind of excited about. Um, other areas of financial regulation. Uh, it was really disappointing to see uh, the uh, Department of Labor's fiduciary rule uh, rolled back by the current administration. That was something uh, I was very excited about. I think that as fintech companies become more powerful, especially as they, uh, if they do indeed take over more and more in the way of automation for consumers, if you're able to automate something for someone, that means you have a lot of power over their accounts and their financial life. That also means you have the opportunity potentially to take advantage of them. So I think that there needs to be a new way of articulating the standard of care that companies uh, are required to provide for their consumers. And in the investment services industry uh, for independent financial advisors, that has been called a fiduciary standard and it's pretty well accepted. I would be very excited to see the concept of fiduciary uh, embraced more fully both by regulators in the form of the Department of Labor rules and maybe applied in other sectors, but also by fintech companies. I think if you're a fintech company that says, I want to be all about my consumer, you have to do that in a way that is both uh, a material uh, statement and something that that has kind of good precedent, right? So if you, if you want to be a mortgage company, there's nothing to stop you today from saying, we're gonna be a fiduciary. We're only gonna recommend mortgage products that are in the best interest of the consumer above and beyond our own financial incentives. And that's just not how the mortgage industry works today. So I think that's also a thing of value you can, can, can communicate to your customers to say like, look, we've done this new thing where we say like, your interests really are first. Uh, I think there are other places that could be applied. So 
the broader expansion of a fiduciary standard is something I'm excited about. And um, Tim Wu, who's a professor at uh, Columbia, he's written about the potentiality of using something like a fiduciary standard as an alternative to the European Union's data privacy laws. Uh, so that's something that's outside of the the finance world, although in finance you do have a lot of consumer data, uh, and it's but it's thinking about how do you really uh, ensure that businesses are taking uh, consumers' interests first. And there just seems to be a, a long trade-off between innovation, for lack of a better term, in the financial services space and making sure that consumers are, are still protected, just given how central financial services are to, to consumers' well-being in many cases. Yeah. If, if you're taking over... If you're moving someone's money around as a financial services provider, one very easy way to make money is to simply <laughs> take things from individuals. Uh, and so it's there's a lot of potential conflict of interest, and so you need ways to, to mitigate that. And what's your advice for students looking to break into fintech? Uh, first bit of advice is just to read lots and lots of things. Uh, there are a lot of fintech companies have interesting blogs. So if there are fintech companies that you're interested in, uh, just go and read through all of their material. Uh, I use a RSS aggregator. Feedly is the one I use. So I find that's a great way to... A lot of things that are changing quickly in the industry, you can't actually go out and read a book about it because everything's being built. Uh, and so you need to find kind of newer sources of media that are able to give you a sense of what's actually going on. Uh, and so I read a lot of just disparate blogs. So you know, maybe I find a fintech company I'm really interested in, I subscribe to the company blog, then I look up who their CEO is, I see if they do any writing on Medium, I subscribe to that. And so it's all about going out uh, and finding a whole bunch of different sources, aggregating those together in some way, and then just coming back and revisiting them. So reading a lot uh, is really important. The other thing is, if you are fortunate enough to be in an ecosystem like uh, the Bay Area or San Francisco, uh, the Bay Area or New York uh, in particular, go out and meet with lots of people because being on the ground uh, and just talking to folks by going to events at the like the community I run, FinTech Devs and PMs, is a great way to really see what's going on and just get a sense of the language that people are using to describe things. Uh, so reading, uh, meeting people, and then other than that, uh, I don't know, those are two, the two of the most important things. Uh, and I'd say of those, probably if you can meet with people and just have lots of conversations, that's the most the most important thing to do. And that's a great way to come full circle. Thanks so much, Rex, the founder of Devs and PMs. Thanks, Christian. Appreciate it. Thanks.